0: This is Dialogue with Drake and Deboo. My name is Emma Drake.
1: And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and sometimes pop culture. Our topic for today is anti-racism action on PEI. In summer 2020, the Black Ultra Society and BIPOC Usher, as well as a number of community members, tabled a petition with a number of recommendations to the Legislative Assembly of PEI. One of these recommendations was the creation of a provincial anti-racism advisory position that would analyze all legislation from an anti-oppression lens.
0: In September 2021, this advisor was finally hired, and additionally, an anti-racism table was created to provide the -the on-the-ground perspective and expertise to the Executive Council. Here to talk all things anti-racism and the path forward, with us today is PEI's anti-racism advisor, human rights commissioner, co-founder of BIPOC Usher, community organizer and craft beer specialist, Dante Bazard. Dante, thank you so much for taking time out of your Sunday morning to speak with us this morning. Our first and the most important question for you today is how are you doing?
2: Yes, yeah, it's glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. I'm, I'm doing good. Uh, it's it's the weekend, Um, it's not the long weekend yet, but still the weekend and you know we had the, uh, the daylight savings right extra sleep so that's good. Um, but you know always glad to to um, introduce myself and to speak more about my role in politics and that kind of stuff so yeah i'm excited to get into it today.
3: yeah and absolutely that hour of sleep was so necessary and very appreciated um, and we're happy to have you. Now, Dante, you are the first person on PEI to hold the whole role of Provincial Anti-Racism Policy Advisor to the Executive Council. Can you tell us a little bit about this role?
2: Uh, yeah, um, you know, and every time I hear it, the first person, it sounds like such, such a, a huge deal. Um, but yeah, this this particular position, um, really, it started from the, uh, the petition that we presented to the uh, Legislative Assembly. Um, during the Black Lives Matter march that we had last year that was, um, you know, started by the Black Ulster Society and by in Collaboration. And um, through that petition, we asked for the establishment of the anti-rism policy advisor as well as the anti-rism table. Um, so uh, about a year and a half later, just fast forwarding through that, we've um, been working on a, uh, we call it the PEI-EDI project. Um, where we were tasked with, it was me, um, Tamara, and uh, some consultants uh, from from Halifax. Um, And we saw our own uh, citizen engagement committee, um, which were comprised of persons from from PEI who were heavily involved in the community and wanted to help establish the anti racism table as well as the policy advisor position. And we actually got that done this this year. Um, So the position was established within the Executive Council. Um, I was interviewed for it, <laughs> I got the position and um, yeah, so, and I just started, it's only been about a month, uh, a month and a half, not even, probably a month and a, and a few weeks, <laughs> um, so very early in, um, but the, the primary role though for this position is to uh, view existing and new legislation uh, policies and programs uh, with an anti rism lens, is a lens that we, well that PEI has hasn't had officially um, within the provincial government, um, but it is a, a role that's very similar to other roles that have been established across Canada. So I'm glad that we're finally getting the you know the needle moving in this direction um, to do anti-racism work in PEI.
0: That's an awesome overview and and congratulations once again on this new role. Another really exciting part about this role is the work with the newly established anti-racism table, as you mentioned, which was established uh, very recently in fall 2021. So can you tell us a little bit about the mandate of this group and how the members were chosen?
2: Yeah, for sure yeah the the mandate of the group it's it's very similar to the anti uh policy advisor because my role with the with the uh table is to be liaison so i'm not really a a member of the table um but um i guess you can see the connection between the government and the community and that's really what the anti antirism table is and i guess that's you know part of the mandate that differs is that they represent the community voices because oftentimes uh it's very hard to capture community voices um for government to capture community voices and have it uh, successfully and, uh, you know, just apply to legislation and policy. Um, so it's the mandate of this group really, um, to provide that insight and to provide that, um, you know, advising as well as just solutions to the government, um, that our community inform as it pertains to anti racism work. So as for how the members were chosen, um, well, it was two ways. So I guess the first way was that it was, it was, uh, advertised through engage PEI. Um, and that was how we chose the members at large. I believe we had about five positions open for the members at large. But as for the other uh, positions, we contacted um, the other other ethnic organizations in, in PEI, such as, you know, BCS, uh, Black Culture Society, um, BIPOC Usher, uh, the Native Council, and El Nui, Um, And we asked them if they can nominate uh, members to sit on the anti-racism table. So we did receive some members Uh, through nomination. And that's how we uh, build the table. uh, Basically,
0: that's super interesting. I I wasn't familiar at all with that process. But it really sounds to me as though it's really coming from the community upwards, right? Like working with those groups directly. That's, that's awesome to hear. And um, moving forward, just kind of in general, how will your role work with the anti racism table, um, kind of in, in both of your equal parts mandates?
2: Yeah, so so right now we've we've had our our second meeting, um, and we haven't chosen a chair as yet. So really, a lot of the of the the groundwork has has fallen on me to to get the table started. Um, so when I started my role as the policy advisor, uh, one of my tasks was to uh bring the members together and to have the the first meeting, um, so that we can get you know the work started, um. So, uh, for me, I would. So, I'm the liaison. So, basically, I would provide information to the table as they do their work. So, if they need any information on uh, the, you know, how the government works, because, you know, a lot of these uh, persons that are on the table, uh, they may be familiar with government processes, some may not. Um, they have a lot of expertise in different areas, but not in all areas, uh, which is fully understandable. Um, so, really, I'm there to uh, not really fill in those gaps more so to provide the information that they need in order to do their work. Um, and also on my end to uh, to advocate for them because you know th- they provide advice to the government but the government doesn't necessarily have to take their advice <laughs> if that makes sense um, so I have to present information um, to the government that comes out of the table and also have to, you know ex- express how how urgent and how important it is for them to implement the changes that they would advise and uh, present to me so I guess that's how our our work kind of connects together um but with the same goal with anti racism in mind as well too so yeah and i also want to mention too is that you know with with this process the first time i believe in in atlantic canada they had something like the anti racism table that uh that presents to directly to the premier and as such i guess the government did well they were when i came in they were surprised at how many applicants that we received for the table but only not the number but also the the caliber of of persons that um, that applied. Um, So it really showed that A, there's a lot of persons out there who want to do the work in PEI who may not have the chance to, so it's great that we were able to connect with them. Um, And B, we have very highly talented BIPOC persons in PEI to tap into. Um, Unfortunately, we only could uh, choose choose 11, but man, we had a lot of high caliber uh, participants, so I'm very happy for that.
3: That's awesome. And, you know, we've really seen this in the last few years where, you know, there's been an increasing number of newcomers or folks who have been on PEI for a long time, but didn't really have a high profile. So it's super exciting to have these folks around the table to share their experiences, but also their expertise um, and really guide the work that you're doing now, you know, Oftentimes, we when we talk about PEI, we say it's a friendly, welcoming, nice place. Uh, but we know that's not necessarily always the case, especially when it comes to BIPOC communities. Um, so, how would you describe general attitudes towards BIPOC folks on PEI?
2: Yeah, you know, I I've, I feel like uh, I've spoken about this a lot in the past two years. <laughs> <laughs> at this particular uh, topic, what I like to start with is that. PEI is when it comes to how you know bipolar person is treated in a in a society, PEI is no different from any other place. Um, mm-hmm. Every place you have you know um, you, you have uh, experience of discrimination, racism, things like that um, everywhere. But there are nuances, right? Mm-hmm. There are nuances, and I think with with PEI, PEI is friendly, welcoming, nice. Um, but those kind of traits are what I like to call, and I, I I'm using my own. <laughs> wording here uh on the surface traits so mm-hmm. what i mean by that is that th- that when you wake up in the morning and you tell someone good morning you don't have a reflex you're not you're not doing it because you generally want to know how, if so- someone's having a good morning you're doing it because that's what you've always been told you should do you've been grown up to, you know to believe that what you should do when you uh, see someone in the morning um and that's how pei operates pei operates from being very traditional being very um on the surface um I I, dare I say passive aggressive when it comes to dealing with BIPOC persons Um, there's different there's definitely uh, you know that 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 conflict there, but they don't really like to address. um, How they're really feeling um, and those kind of things so it's very hard to to engage persons in PI to understand how they really feel by BIPOC persons because on a surface, it could seem like that they're very welcoming which they are to an extent. But then when you get into spaces where there are not a lot of BIPOC persons, like government, for example, then that's where you, you kind of see the friction. Because when the BIPOC persons start to speak out on certain issues and that kind of thing, um, it's not uh like it's not supported by everyone unless it's trendy, like the Black Lives Matter March. Um so yeah, I, I'm not really having a conclusion in stating all of this. It's more so this this is the reality of um the BIPOC experience in PEI.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you're right. And oftentimes it's like you meet up with someone and everything seems fine. But then when you start reflecting back on the conversations, that's when you start noticing little things that are off. And it's more, you know, in terms of microaggressions or, or things like that. Uh, but right. in speaking of, you know, anti-racism work um, in a CBC interview on August 31st, you stated that anti-racism work has been going on in mm-hmm. other provinces and it's about time we catch up on PEI to do this work. What are some of these best practices that you've noticed from other provinces?
2: Um, well, on first of all, on a government level, because, I mean, a part of my position has been a lot of networking. So I've been networking with a lot of uh, across jurisdictions to understand what's been being done in terms of anti work work. Um, and you have, you know, great things happening, for example, like in Halifax, um, where they have a whole, a whole office dedicated to equity uh, initiatives, and um, they have an anti-black racism framework that they recently released. Um, they're also announcing that they're working on anti-racism legislation, for example. Do um, you see the same thing in Ontario, too, with the anti-racism uh, secretariat and their anti-racism strategy? So I mean, they have all of these anti-racism resources uh, that they have that we don't have in PEI. We just simply have, we have not been doing the work. Um, you know, it, it, it dawned on me, actually, I was at my desk the other day. And um, I was telling myself, you know, I I feel really busy today. I have so much things on my desk. I was like, you know what? I just got here. I'm wondering what were they doing before? (laughs) Like, I I have so much work to do, but like, where was this work being done before me, (laughs) right? Like this, it's not like they just, it just got on my desk, right? It was always there. Um, So the work just hasn't been done. Um, But in these other provinces, they have persons that have been doing this work uh, for years. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's great that I'm here and that we're doing this work. and that, that PEI is now playing catch up on on this work. Um, and other things do I see too, is that there's a, there's a genuine connection between uh, government and, and other organizations, nonprofit organizations too. Um, and I think that's something we can we can practice in PEI. I mean, it's, it's been, it has been done in PEI, but because we have um, growing ethnic organizations like you know Biguser, for example, um, they're mm-hmm. fairly new and you know BCS just got the operational funding. Uh, we need to fund these organizations more to get past just raising awareness, but also doing the work because they have the solution. So we need to make that connection to move that work forward. Um, so this there's, there's yeah, there's like like those things. There are a number of great best practices that are happening in these other processes that we could definitely implement here in PEI. Mm-hmm.
3: Definitely. And and you raise a very good point, you know, as we have BCS and we have BIPOC Usher. Sure which are still right now very small organizations with, you know, in both cases, uh, very few permanent staff people. So, you know, these folks end up having to consult so many times that they're spread thin. And oftentimes they might feel like they can't say no, because, you know, if BIPOC usher is saying no to consultation, who is going to be that voice for BIPOC folks on PI? So definitely uh, agree with you on that point about increasing operational funding. Uh, but when we're talking about anti-racism again, uh, it feels like, you know, for different organizations or businesses, uh, whatever, um, anti-racism becomes kind of a checkbox to kind of uh, move forward. Uh, and it's usually in the form of workshops. We've called it anti-oppression training, EDI training, gender diversity, whatnot. Uh, while yeah. these forms of training are important, what kind of follow up do you think these workshops need to be effective?
2: Yeah, that's that's a very good very good question so I've, I've made the observation too i mean there's a number of studies that point to this that uh with these kind of trainings it doesn't really um have long term change um and it's a very good question to ask you know what do we need to do to move forward because even in those those research they state that you need to have follow-ups you need to have um action items to go forward um but which require more resources and not necessarily being done by the original facilitator of these these workshops so it's really um the organizations that need to to move the needle forward to to move their their organizations forward um to follow up and do that work basically um and i mean i know it's very very hard very hard for organizations to to do but needs to be a priority at 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 this point especially in 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 pi without growing diversity um because all workshops really do is raise awareness and then when you're aware then what do you do next then the action needs to follow um so that's what they really need to do for it to be more effective is actually to complete those action have those action items uh create positions if needed uh to do that work and yeah um that's 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 really it honestly um just they have they have to to have action items to, to to do the work and get past awareness
0: yeah, and I'm happy you brought up kind of the context of follow up and, and what that looks like because it leads really well into our next question, which was in June 2020, you were one of the many leaders in the community who worked with Black Cultural Society of PEI and BIPOC Gusher uh, that created the petition to call on the government of PEI to review all existing legislation with a racially focused lens. What has the follow up been like that since that initial petition was tabled in the Legislative Assembly. Yeah,
2: well, I mean, the most notable follow-up was that the position was created. I know it it took some time; it's like a year and a half, um, but we got there uh, through some pushing, and we have the, the my position created as a recent policy advisor, um, as well as the table. Um, the other thing we've seen too is that, um, and I'm glad we have persons, you know, like, like Gorman Neely, for example, um, who was in the legislature, legisl- in the Legislative Assembly, and really been addressing these issues head on right he's 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 really been the one who's who's been uh, championing um the anti-racism work that's been done on the island and making government aware of of different issues so that they can focus on it um so what we're really seeing is that beyond the black lives matter march we've seen that the government has now become aware of these issues well they were more aware of these issues but more aware of these issues and how much that affects the community visually um and now they understand that work needs to be done um but at the same time there's kind of saying the government doesn't really so they know that the work needs to be done but at the same time they may not know, know how to do the work um so i'm glad that they're hiring persons uh like me that have uh, the table like or we need to have more persons within government with more representation to do that work um, to fill in those gaps, because those gaps existed for a very long time. Um, and that's very telling. Um so yeah, so so and they've but they've been very accepting of, of hearing uh these new ideas, new initiatives, and that kind of thing. Because a lot of times the government has been um known to either move very slowly or not be very innovative. Um I'm not just talking about PIs in general, just government in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find with 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 PEI, um, this current government has been very open to these conversations been open to these actions been open to to have to just 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 move forward on these these initiatives that's that's great um because i always advocate you know when we have bipart persons willing to do the work you should let them do the work and that's what's happening
3: mm-hmm. so
2: that's that's good
3: mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's awesome to, you know, have people who are going through these experiences to offer input on what needs to be improved, um, as opposed to just being uh, given solutions uh, by other folks. Now, one of the focus areas outlined in the petition that was tabled was justice. Um, And in December of 2020, you started your role as a commissioner in the Human Rights Commission of Prince Edward Island. What is the role of a commissioner, uh, you know, in the Human Rights Commission?
2: Yeah, so the position of the commissioner um, it has uh, t- two different roles, really. Um, so the first is really um, similar to a board member role. So hearing things like the budget, um, other issues going on within the commission itself, and those kind of things, um, advising on the different initiatives they want to bring forward uh, to the commission to go, uh, such as training, for example. Um, but be, but besides the the board member work, uh, the other role of the uh, commissioner is that any human rights complaints that aren't uh, uh, settled between the mediation stage and goes to our, our hearing panel, um, a commission would often sit on that panel, and then we would hear uh, those cases. Um, so then we would at that point that's 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 where I would say the actual like human rights work uh, is applied for the human rights com- uh, commissioners. Um, and we, we would hear, hear those cases and make a ruling decision on those cases.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. And how do you feel like anti-racism work within the scope of justice fits into the jurisdiction of the Human Rights Commission?
2: Yeah, so um, similar to, to the, the Human Rights Commission has really um, put a huge focus on anti-racism um, and inclusion <clears throat> since, you know, recent events. And... Um, one of the things they have done is that they have increased their well. First of all, they did a workshop um, to increase their their awareness and their understanding of anti-racism and this work that needs to be done. Um, they also are aware of uh, certain gaps in when it comes to justice and anti-racism in terms of of ruling how to identify whether someone has human rights has been violated due to the grounds of of racism. Because um, I think there's been a huge a huge gap there in terms of okay are we assessing if someone said you know overtly like you know the n-word or something that's very you know very open or are we assessing microaggressions now they're having that conversation um so we're we're they're understanding how to uh view violation of human rights in a very different way that catches up to the nuances of racism um so that's that's good and uh for what else we have been doing in terms of that work. Well, also increasing representation within the Human Rights Commission. You know, I am the first um, Black Human Rights Commissioner, um, so I've been very vocal on that um, in our meetings and just, you know, in public. And I guess one of my uh, goals in the Human Rights Commission, as well as the anti Policy Advisor, is to increase representation within um, the Human Rights Commission uh, so we can have more BIPOC commissioners to, to sit on these panels and, and so forth, because um, we can't have justice or representation so yeah they have they have really um been very open again, just like um, with these ideas and this going forward, so i am hoping that well, I know that we we will uh, accomplish these goals within the human rights commission as well too,
0: yes, and I think just listening to you and learning from you, Dante, like. I feel like a lot of folks are familiar with the Human Rights Commission, but including myself, don't really know how it works, mm-hmm. and don't really know, you know, how how does this fit within the scope of justice? Because it, you know, it, as we've learned, it plays an integral role. And uh, yourself as the first Black commissioner, you know, that being uh, essential moving forward in terms of the intersection between the role of the Human Rights Commission and uh, addressing justice in, in PEI. So thank you for that. Um, Another focus area that has been mentioned in addition to justice is, of course, education. Now, of course, we know this takes on a lot of different roles on PEI. Uh, It could be the kindergarten to grade 12 system. It could be the post-secondary education system, or it could simply be lifelong learning. Now, through your role with BIPOC Gusher, you facilitate a number of different training opportunities on anti-racism, and you see firsthand where the varying levels of understanding are. So, first question on this is: What are some existing gaps when it comes to education on PEI, and what are some solutions that you would envision to bridge these gaps?
2: Yeah. Um, see, like the thing with like me and education too is that I, I grew up in the Bahamas, so I imagine like the education system is different and it, some nuances between the Bahamas and um, and PEI. But through recent news in pei and just in canada in general of what's been happening in terms of with anti-racism um it's very similar in terms of the gaps out there uh so when i'm so for example i draw some connection to my country and, and canada is that in the bahamas we don't really teach um our our own history our history is very eurocentric it's very whitewashed and it's the same thing here in pei too um so we we see that um students for example don't have a lot of knowledge about uh indigenous issues for example indigenous history for example or even uh, black history and pei that's that's not being taught and i know there are some initiatives happening right now um particularly with the ed of black the black hole society with tamara Steele, who is working on um creating resources and textbooks um to address that um but that is that is a, a huge gap um for you know for bipoc students to feel a sense of belonging belonging there to learn about their history, but also just for um, the other students, too, to understand why the society is the way it is. <laughs> so it's very important. Because um, then that's when we see uh, students who are discriminating against, discriminating against other students, but really fully understand what, what's, what they're doing, the history behind them, it, why it's offensive, that kind of thing. So then if we do that, then we can uh, move forward and have those conversations. The other thing is, too, that being said, is the accountability factor? So we've seen new news of discrimination, um, you know, homophobia, and things like that uh, from the schools in PEI recently. And a huge thing has been the accountability piece. So are persons being held accountable? Um, is it being done publicly? Uh, is it being done in a way that it brings some sort of retribution to the persons that have been hurt and that kind of thing? Um, we have seen seen some progress with them um, hiring uh, Evelyn Bradley uh, to do that, to that work, to help them with, with addressing those, those issues, that's, that's good. Um, but you need to have, you need to have policy to in, in place to protect those students. And that's, an, that's the other gap too. In, in that being said, so we need to have, um, anti-discrimination policy within within schools. Um, that being said, I do want to mention in Halifax, they have developed an inclusion education policy that they have just, um, implemented, or I don't know if it's implemented yet, but they, they have created it. So I'm looking into that to see how we can implement that here in PEI and different guiding principles, the you know, policy objectives and the out- and what kind of outcomes they're looking for, um, and see how we can apply that here. Um, but yeah, it's 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 really it's it's really those those gaps that that needs to be addressed and um and a policy would be in place to to protect students here in PEI
0: and your your comment on the accountability factor i think is is not to be uh taken lightly because uh it's very hard to be held accountable if there's not a policy in place you're being held accountable to and we saw that in march 2021 we learned from the minister of education in an interview that the public schools branch does not in fact have specific anti-racism policy now you mentioned this a little bit in your last answer but if a policy were to be written you know what are some key components that should be included in that type of policy
2: yeah um so for that policy really um especially for the accountability piece um it has to have clear details of you know well okay first of all they need to define the problem um, so, understanding how anti-racism work in the firm of education and having that defined within the policy, so we know exactly what, we're focu- what they should be focusing on, um, and then also how to identify it. Because one thing about accountability is that you have to be able to define the problem before you can hold it accountable. Um, so, they need to have clear definitions of racism, of, de- of discrimination, um, and the nuances within that, so we have to also include microaggressions. Um, over covert racism on all, all those uh sort of things um so that it is addressed um accurately and then you have to move on with the accountability piece so the accountability piece is not just by saying you will hold a review and then that's the end of the story it has to be actual accountability so yes hold your review but also what happens after that so it has to be you have to show it step by step so you hold a review um and I me mean, i'm just you know talking like hypothetically you hold a review um and then you would have um you know how long would, well, what would what happen to, to the students? Um, would, would they be suspended? How far along? Uh, is there an educational component? Um, do they have to take certain um, trainings to now, um, you know, they call sensitivity trainings, um, those kind of things? Um, what about the role of of the teachers? A lot of times these things aren't happening just between students. They're just happening between teachers and students or students and students, but the teachers are witnesses, right? So why aren't, why aren't they doing anything? Are they taking bystander training, that kind of stuff? Is that mandated within? um onboarding processes to have my terrorism training those kind of stuff I mean it's a lot it's 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 a lot of um questions that needs to be addressed uh, but also these things would be in the policy too so these things are mandated um, and being done every time there's an incident
3: awesome and you know as you were talking um I, I was kind of thinking of the similarities Uh, between anti-racism work and other forms of anti-discrimination work. Of course, you know, in the last few weeks, we've seen students uh, at the Charlottetown Rural do walkouts to protest, you know, sexual harassment and sexual assault in those cases. And again, that, and, you know, Previously with East Wilshire, we saw, you know, the same kind of discrimination uh, when it comes to LGBTQ plus students. And each time again, as you said, we've been hearing about reviews and not so much about uh, that other piece of accountability as to how do we actually take um, action to move forward from this. So I think it's just really interesting that, you know, all these different forms of discrimination just seem so interconnected. And it feels like there's similar strategies to deal with all of them. So that just needs to be done. Uh, but of course, we know that anti-racism work isn't just a PI issue. It's something we've been talking about, you know, not just in Canada, but around the world as well. Um, so in 2019, the federal government launched their 2019-2022 anti-racism strategy, uh, which has several components, such as demonstrating federal leadership, empowering communities, and building awareness and changing attitudes. How do you find that this strategy guides your work in the province here?
2: Yeah. um, So with my work, um, one of my first tasks was to build my own framework for my position, since it's the first time it's being done in PEI. So the government, I didn't go in and the government had a framework for my position to operate from. I I have to now create that framework. So as such, um, I had to do reviews to see what's already being done and what can be applied to my work. And um, what's unique about my position is that usually there's a whole department for anti-racism, whereas it's just one position in, in PEI. Um, so I like how the, so I've been using the federal government anti-racism strategy. Um, although they do have a whole department, the way that it's written is really could be applied to an individual. Um, so I've been using that basically as the bare bones of my, fr- of my framework from, for my position, um, and to see how it can be applied, uh, to to really bring a, a provincial, um, lens to it and i also want to mention to help me with that i've also been using the anti-black racism um strategy from halifax as well too um the provides great insight on guiding principles and even a, a lens of intersectionality like we fit within the anti-racism framework that's needed for the anti-racism framework in pei um so it's been great that strategy has been written has been released and i could use that now um from my position to guide my work um you know the federal Demonstrating federal leadership is, is, is important in empowering communities, which I, I spoke about before, which again ties into with the anti racism table. So there's a lot of things, initiatives that we already have in place that kind of relates already to the strategy. So it's then also making sure that we follow the strategy. And as I said before, anti racism work across Canada needs to be uniform. It has to look the same. Um, so that when we make our case, we say, okay, it's being, doing, being done here. So we can also do it here too. Um, And having a federal strategy allows us to do that Um, so it's very important i I follow it but also provide our you know our nuances of pei to it as well too
0: thank you so much for that and um, we're going to shift gears a little bit into kind of the next section of the interview that looks at kind of the intersection between anti-racism work and the immigration system Now, in the second quarter of 2021, PEI had the fourth highest number of international immigrants per capita after the Yukon, Ontario, and British Columbia. Um, Now, a lot of immigrants are also BIPOC folks uh, who come to the province as permanent residents. Um, Now, one of the challenges though, is that historically BIPOC folks have not been heard by government. And of course, because of that, policies have not reflected their needs. This intersection with the immigration system directly. So, why do you think it's hard for newcomers and permanent residents to see their voices heard at all levels of government?
2: Well, you know, it's it's, it's just that, right? They just don't, they don't have that rep, that representation. Um, so, what we, what we see sometimes um, is that if you have everyone who looks the same and have the same experiences in the room and very similar backgrounds, that's what you're going to see. You're 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 reflecting yourself when you're making policies and decisions and things like that. Um, so a lot of times when government are making these decisions, I, I mean, they may talk about BIPOC folks, but they don't really understand the issues and nuances of that community. So the impact is just not going to be there. Um, that being said, that shows a, a clear indicator to immigrants and the BIPOC community that the government doesn't understand their needs. Um, so then there's a, that disconnect um so they may not be more compelled to have a key relationship with their government um to, to to get into politics or even be vocal about politics because they know that at the end of the day it just won't apply to them um so yeah it's, it's 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 more of um i guess the term would be like uh, disheartening and and just not applying your policy needs to to the BIPOC and the, the, uh, the immigrant community. So that, that really um, impact them. And then also to the fact too that, you know, it doesn't matter how long you st- you've you've been in, in Canada, you can't vote unless you're a citizen. <laughs> so if I even further that, okay, your voice doesn't matter, because your voice is not heard in any level of of, of um, elections in DEI. So how else would their voices be heard and, and taken seriously?
0: Well, it all goes back to as well, like, you know, taxation without representation is as silly as it sounds, but it's it's totally yep. true, right? And um, we've seen some different efforts in municipalities, particularly across Canada to address this very concern. Um, for example, such as in Toronto and, and Halifax, That's we've talked about a lot in this interview where um, there's been rising movements of folks advocating for ro- voting rights for permanent residents. What advantages do you think giving ro- voting rights to permanent residents would have for PEI in terms of retention, engagement, or other factors?
2: Well, it's just, it's just that, right? Like we said before, the problems that would that would help a lot of those problems. Um, you know, so if they can vote now, then they have their voices heard. They have um, representation with taxation, <laughs> um, and they all they uh, they can now become involved in in politics in, in their in their community. Um, you know, because to have retention, you have to have a connection with the community, um, and you can't do that unless your voice, is, your voice is heard or you have the opportunity to be involved in, in your community, because then you can say, okay, well, we'll give um, BIPOC persons or immigrants a platform to speak their mind, but it has to go beyond that they have to have direct involvement um, in, go- in governance, um, and also to fill those gaps too, because I mean, even if you go beyond um immigrants uh and permanent residents even for for bipoc citizens there's still not representation in in government right that that, that person that look like them that are, that are at the decision to, uh making decisions at the table um at high level positions um so all around it needs to be more representation to begin with um to encourage um retention mpi in in particular um you know i always point to me as a, as a good example because especially around this time during the by election, I have you know candidates knocking on my door, and they're like, you know, we want to hear from you of the issues within your within your community. I'm like, I can't even vote for you, <laughs> like, well, I don't want to even have this conversation. I mean, I can have this conversation because because of my work, um, but at the end of the day, I still can't vote for you. So I, I can tell you my issues, but then I, it won't even count. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. I've been in in Canada off and on eight years. Um, and you know, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I've com- I've contributed immensely to the community here. But I still can't vote. Like that's that's that is. I don't even know what the word is for that. That's just that's just sad, <laughs> honestly. To be quite open, um, so I can only even imagine. It must be like um, for actually. Sorry to go off on a tangent, but I have a friend um, who had who was originally from um, Hong Kong. But he's been he's been here since middle school and he's he only has it from a resident like he he's been in canada for 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 about uh what 15 16 years and he's oh he still can't vote <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, know. I
3: know and it's You know, as as you were talking, I was also reflecting back to like the number of get out the vote campaigns I've been involved with as a student and after. And it's like, yeah, I'm telling all of these people to vote, but also feel like a hypocrite because I can't do it myself. So definitely it it plays into it. You want to be engaged, but it's not like there's any way for you to actually, you know, make that difference and get your voice heard outside of volunteering, which is a bit of a turn off for a lot of people. Uh, but we know municipalities on PEI are governed by the Municipal Government Act uh, provincially, which you know can be amended by provincial bills and is a bit easier to get around um, as opposed to uh, provincial and federal levels of government. So, do you think voting rights for permanent residents is something you could see being successfully implemented in the province?
2: Absolutely, it could it could be successfully implemented. Implemented, um, if I'm not mistaken, it was. Would... Uh, permanent resident voting if, from municipal elections was being done in New Brunswick for yeah. some point in time, mm-hmm. um, until they amended it that they can't anymore. Uh, yeah. So it's not like it's, ne- it's never been done in Canada, it's, it's been done before and it was being done successfully until it was just amended for some reason. <laughs> so it could definitely be successfully implemented um, in, in PEI. I think the question is, uh, can it be? Mm. Right. Um, what's what's the opposition um to to amending um voting rights and that kind of thing? Uh because you know, like you said before introducing this question, if this conversation has happened before across Canada, but it mm-hmm. hasn't happened yet. And not just this year, it's been happening for years. <laughs> so there needs to be an, an add-on component. I think that the Particular uh, situation that PEI is in when it comes to its uh, aging population and its rapid growth in population of 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 a BIPOC community immigrants that is gonna it's and eventually PEI is gonna have to look at at themselves and their current economic situation and say, look we need we need to keep persons here um, and the way to do that they need to be involved in their community and in governance and we need to um, demand our voting rights I think is 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 eventually gonna have to get to that point mm-hmm. um, and I. But I, I hope that it doesn't have to come to. That. I hope that it comes to. It just makes sense to do it, not more so that we have to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a hard advocate, advocate um, for, for it.
3: <laughs> Absolutely, and again, it seems like for some arbitrary reason, it just changed in New Brunswick. Um, so you know. The last question of kind of a formal part of the interview for you is, you know, we've talked a lot about your work as the anti racism policy advisor and the work of the anti racism table, how can we keep up with you know the work that is being done and how can islanders better support it.
2: yeah as for uh, keeping up with the work um. As of right now, we haven't implemented a uh, communication strategy as yet, Um, but it it is in the works on how we're going to communicate our work to the public, but not only uh, to the government. Uh, Because I'm a huge advocate for for uh, public reporting, um, because that's one way of of holding you know government accountable. But it's also going to be the same thing too for um, the anti-racism table. So because the anti-racism table they are connected to to the executive council, yes, um, but they're also independent as well too. Uh, so I'm hoping that we will form a, a, as well as a communication strategy, uh, that way between the community and the work that the table is doing. Um, but they'll also be releasing a report. I think we agreed on quarterly, but we still have to, iron out those details. Um, but those I'm hoping will also be, um, given out publicly as well too. So it's just public reporting, open communication and dialogue. Um, personally i will be showing up to a lot of events and <laughs> so i mean a person's one to approach me there you're very open to and asking about anything related to anti-terrorism and, and governance or just to have that conversation um as the role for how islands can better support me to be quite frank i'm one person to be very um realistic about because i know there's a lot of change that needs to happen and when it comes to to advocacy and work like this you know it's like, like you know for example throughout the years like for rights and things like that um not to say that these things need to be slow moving, um, but we also have to trust uh, the progress and also to appreciate the progress as well, too, because a lot of times this work can can be. Um, it's not very uh, immediately rewarding to do the work and sometimes you just need to, to keep that in mind to keep up the motivation to continue to do the work, especially being, you know, like the. uh being the first to do this position and to be a bible person in government where there's not much representation of yourself to begin with <laughs> uh, so that's one way to 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 support but also just to keep on having conversations within your um, spaces too um because you know a lot of times persons don't want to believe that there's power in numbers but that there really is power in numbers and um if you're all having the the same conversations um talking about it having truthful conversations and what needs to change that and that sort of thing so when certain things happen, um wink wink <laughs> then you know persons can get behind it um, and say you know what this makes sense um let's advocate for it let's move forward and push the government to to get this work done um because I can't do it by myself the table can't do it by themselves um but we are you know the ones that are making the decisions uh, uh well trying to help to make the, the decisions and to advise on policy or or legislation programs um but we really need that community support behind it too so yeah, that's 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 how the community can can support our work.
0: Well, we're really looking forward to whenever the communications plan is finished and then that way folks can can really i think both follow and learn about the work that's being done but i think also to amplify it like i think we've seen particularly like with uh, the resurgence of kind of prominent social media and post-covid 19 and that whole piece i think a lot of people are looking forward to uh, amplifying that content online especially so really looking forward to that Now we'll shift gears to the most serious part of our interview. I know I'm sweating. I'm nervous. You know, Uh, this is a hard part about it. So uh, for (laughs) listeners, this is our beer panel. I think beer panel only in name, but sometimes it includes beer. Uh, This is the part where we each take turns uh, mentioning different recommendations for folks to check out. Typically, we like to keep things local, but it could be anything. It could be a beer, could be a recipe, could be an organization, could be all of the above. So uh, Dante, as our very special guest we'll hand things over to you what would you like to recommend to dialogue listeners
2: sure um this won't be a pei local um uh, but uh my mother-in-law's boyfriend has a microbrewery in our new brunswick and it's called johnny jacks uh, they do also sell their beer in uh, st john and halifax and i think also vancouver too um like i'm not just saying i mean i i could be biased here but it is one of the best beers that i ever had in my life <laughs> like it's actually really good um in particular he has a beer called the jubilee it's really good um he also has a viking that's also really good too uh but he's also he also like developed like new beer from time to time like seasonal beer so he's also developing a uh, um a ginger beer like an actual ginger beer um but he's you know so i'm usually the first ones to taste it because he you know needs feedback so that experiment i kind of so i'm happy to oblige to <laughs> so that's 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 good but no it's, it's it's really good beer um if anyone ever has a chance to try it if they're in vancouver uh, in our um or halifax definitely try john jack's beer it's really good
0: Dante, so we're going to be amending your official title from anti-racism policy advisor to anti-racism and craft beer policy advisor, perhaps. Oh, yes,
2: <laughs> definitely. Yes. Um, the <laughs> beer policy advisor. That actually sounds <laughs> sounds really good. They should tack on to my role. That would definitely <laughs> help in <with> my position. <laughs> e- ease the stress. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I do like I like beer amongst like other uh, liqueurs. <laughs> um, in terms of food, though, man, the thing I like about PEI, like PEI, is 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 you know small compared to other places in, in Canada, but PEI surprisingly has a lot of restaurants that have really good food, especially with their seafood. I can't really point to exactly one, so I will tell the listeners out there, just come to PEI and try <laughs> at any um, seafood here. Oh, it's it's really good. So yeah.
3: The beer sounds really good, Uh, especially the ginger beer you mentioned. If you need help with consultants to help you taste the beer, Emma and I can make it work. Uh, Just (laughs) let us know.
2: (laughs) Definitely. I will. (laughs)
0: Yes, sweata, Yeah, you you and I have been known to frequent, uh, you know, some some beers and <laughs> ginger beer is amazing. It's so good. Um, you could also use it for a little Moscow Mule moment. Mm-hmm. You know, never hurt anybody. But sweety, I'll hand it over to you. What would you like to recommend? Uh, I don't have a beer today. I have a
3: wine. Um, it's a rosé called uh, Côte des Roses. And- it's not at the PI Liquor Store, but it can be found at Notables. Um, and I checked, it's also available at the LCDO for our folks who might be in Ontario and might be looking for some wine. Uh, so it's a really great sipping wine. It's great, as you know, it gets colder, a little more nostalgic. Um, and it has a really beautiful bottle. The bottom is shaped kind of uh, like a rose. So
0: that's my recommendation for today. And I appreciate that you, uh, you did some research into our various listeners and participants locations so uh that's that's appreciated (laughs) all right so i'll close things off here with uh another ipa (laughs) the four (laughs) listeners are gonna think wow she's really got a pretty mundane palette but uh this one's delicious as they all are this is from the bicycle craft brewery here in Ottawa and it's called the velocipede IPA um it's kind of a mixture of uh grapefruit and pine so for anyone who also listens who knows we also like gin and tonics aka GTs i think this is a perfect mix between an IPA and a G&T so uh that's what i'll be recommending and uh, for anyone who's listening, or for a sweater, Dante, if you're ever in Ottawa, we're going to go to the Bicycle Craft Brewery and, and I'll treat you as some velocipede IPAs.
2: <laughs> Definitely. That sounds yeah. good.
0: <laughs> Rock on. Well, Dante, this has been an absolute treat. Um, as I said at the start of the interview, you're so articulate and succinct and just. It's, it's, it's such a treat just to listen and to learn from you. Like Sweat and I were saying, we could just listen all day. So thank you so much for your time. And we're really excited to share this episode with listeners.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: That's all the time
1: we have for today, folks. Thanks again for Dante for the very insightful conversations.
0: As always, our opening and closing music is Gas by Shane Pendergast. Now, he is doing a maritime tour in the upcoming weeks. So to our New Brunswick and Nova Scotia listeners, this is your chance.
1: For the Nova Scotians, Shane will be at Breton Brewing on Friday, November 12th, from 4 to 7 p.m. in Sydney, Cape Breton. Then, he would be at the Doriman Pub on Saturday, November 13th, from 9 p.m. to midnight in Shetty Camp. He will then be at Gus's Pub in Halifax on Saturday, November 14th from 8 to 9 p.m. Finally, he will be at the Gahan House in Halifax on Wednesday, November 17th from 7 to 9 p.m.
0: And in New Brunswick, we've got the Gahan House Moncton, Thursday, November 18th, 2021, 8 to 10 p.m., followed by Long Bay Brewery, Friday, November 19th, 2021, 8 to 10 p.m., And then we've got the new Maritime Beer Company show with Lawrence Maxwell, Saturday, November 20th, 2021, 8 p.m. to 11 p.m.
1: We hope you remember to turn your clocks back this past weekend. Stay warm, stay safe.
0: This has been Dialogue.